There's nothing like a really good book, whether it's a fictional story told well or amazing ideas from great minds. Today, we're talking with a well-known Catholic scholar and homeschooling dad, Joseph Pierce, about inspiring your children to love literature. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host, and today we're talking about inspiring your children to love literature with an expert on the subject and one of my favorite authors. Joseph Pierce is senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. A native of England, Mr. Pierce is director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute, editor of the St. Augustine Review, editor of Faith and Culture, and series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions. He is the author of numerous books, including The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, Literary Converts, Wisdom and Innocence, A Life of G.K. Chesterton, Solzhenitsyn, A Soul in Exile, Old Thunder, A Life of Hilaire Belloc, and Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia. I'd like to also mention one of my favorite books, Race with the Devil, Mr. Pierce's Thrilling Conversion Memoir. He's also an instructor at Homeschool Connections and teaches many popular courses on the writings of Shakespeare, Tolkien, Shelley, Wilde, Homer, and other great writers. Welcome to the program, Joseph. Oh, it's good to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I think it's probably a good idea just out of the gate to talk about what we mean by the word literature. Yeah, well, basically, literature, uh, you know, literature is something that's written and read. But when we talk about literature, we talk about something which is uh, beautiful in terms of the use of language. So in, generally in terms of either narrative, in other words, storytelling, or what we might call um, engaging with creation with wonder, which, uh, which is often expressed in poetry. Now, of course, you can have uh, poetry that, that tells a story, and you can have um, the engagement with beauty and uh, and creation with, within within a narrative. But generally speaking, if you like, the two ways the literature reflects who we are is as homo viator, man on a journey to heaven ultimately, and that's a story. Each of our life's journey is a life story. So God, if you like, um, puts us in a story. Um, God himself puts himself in a story, the greatest story ever told, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Within that story, Christ tells us stories, his parables. So stories are a very powerful conveyor of truth. So that's one form of literature, the telling of stories. Um, and the other is uh, the other uh, way of understanding who we are is the Greek word anthropos, he who looks up in wonder, the uplooker. Um, and uh, we, we meant to St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, engage reality through humility, and humility opens the eyes of wonder, and it's wonder that allows us that deeper sense of contemplation, the fruit of which is the Latin word dilatatio, the dilation, the opening of the mind and the soul into the fullness of reality, and we see that in the greatest of poetry. So whichever way you look at it, literature, by these two modes, if you like, leads us to God. I love the way anything really beautiful and powerful like that tells us something about ourselves and something about God. 
Yeah, our, our literature shows us our relationship to our neighbor and to God. I mean, uh, Tolkien and Hamlet uh, in Shakespeare talk about our literature holding up a mirror to man. It shows us ourselves. And of course, in order to actually understand who we are, we have to see ourselves, not narcissistically, you know, like, 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 like the, the, the culture of pride in which we find ourselves, but, but in relation to our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor. Uh, and that and that's what great literature does. It, it situates us within the cosmos in, a, in an ordered and true way. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I, I just want to quote a couple of things from your memoir because I, I was so touched by it. And I just start, picked it up just to look through it a few days ago and found myself rereading it in a, in a very short time. I just blew through it. And one of the, on page 147, if any of you have a copy of Race with the Devil, you mentioned that authors live on in their books. And, I, and I've often said, when I'm teaching my own classes at Homeschool Connections to the kids, that it's just an incredible feeling when you forget that you read, that you're actually reading, and you just suddenly are in the thoughts and in the imagination of another human being, whether they're living or dead. They live on. Yeah, there's a communion involved, of course. And it's not necessarily the same thing as a communion of saints, because every writer's not necessarily a saint. But there was a commu- there's a communion of experience about human nature, it allows us to to not to to see beyond our own times. You know, the, 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 our own times are always, if you like, obsessed with whatever whatever happens to be fashionable. So that we, we always have this choice of: do we follow the Heidegger Geist or the Zeitgeist? Do we follow the spirit of the uh, the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the age? And the spirit of the age is obsessed with, with whatever's fashionable. And if we don't get outside that and beyond that, we think that this rather um, myopic and insular uh, and provincial way of seeing reality which just happens to be fashionable while we're alive is the whole truth by actually engaging by being in communion with past generations um, we can actually experience the fullness of what it is to be a human person so you go right back to homer now over two and a half thousand years ago um to you know chesterton at the beginning of the last century Dickens, Shakespeare, and you can experience the fullness of humanity united in in the love of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm, Is that then a way to kind of appreciate the works that have survived, that they have that element of connecting us to the good, the true, and the beautiful, which is why we still treasure them? Yeah, well, one of my favorite sayings by Chesterton, um, and I think it's from orthodoxy, is that um, tradition uh, is the... um, the enfranchisement of the, uh, get this right now, tradition is the proxy of the dead and the enfranchisement of the unborn. In other words, the tradition is about the past, the present, and the future, because we, we are meant, of course, those that happen to be living in the present um, will very soon be living in the past, and sense we'll be dead. But while we're actually alive, one of our, one of our jobs is to pass on that that a beacon of truth, this living tradition of Western culture, of Christian culture to the next generation, because that's their inheritance. Uh, and we, we are enfranchising them if we are passing on to them. We are depriving them of the goodness, truth, and beauty of the culture of which they are part if we fail to do so. And at the same time, we, we are listening to the proxy of the dead. The dead are not dead in the sense of we don't take them seriously the dead are alive and in both senses of the word because we all live eternally so our our ancestors are not dead in the sense of being nothing of being nothing but dust um because they're either in heaven purgatory or hell they're they're somewhere (laughs) still still alive 
Um, and um, but in the other sense, that in all, all, all that they've said and done, which is a conveyance of of beauty and wisdom, is still available to us. You know, it, it's listening to the wisdom of the elders, and we'd be dumb, literally dumb, if 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 we if we fail to take what the our elders and the wisest people in in in, in human history have had to say. I think that's one of the great one of the great services that Ignatius Press has done is bringing your critical editions out. And the reason is, um, and I know a lot of people listening will be nodding their heads vigorously, so much of so-called, um, you know, literary criticism in recent years has been agenda-driven. It's been very much, like you said, about the zeitgeist. Uh, and, uh, and being able to look at what the actual author in the context of their own time and their own cultural and religious beliefs actually meant is incredibly freeing because then we can kind of let go of, of all of those cultural influences of our own times, but let what was authentic there speak to us now and then move out into the culture. Well, as in, as in all things, including our relationship with our spouses, our relationship with our children, our relationship with God, we actually, it's liberating to get outside of ourselves, to actually give ourselves to another and to be able to see reality through somebody else's perspective. And if you've got one of the, you know, these great writers, why would you not want to read with a spirit of humility and instead of taking your agenda to the text? wonder what you can learn from the text that might even change your life for the better. That's how you approach literature, literature the same way you should approach life. You're on your knees with humility. Exactly. You're just reminding me of why I love the quest for Shakespeare so much, because you just present the facts. You're just looking at what was real at his time and what he actually did and, and what is on the record about his life and the way he lived and who he supported. And it just reveals so much. You didn't have to drive home an agenda. It was also visible just in the facts that Shakespeare's Catholicism was highly likely, very real and lived out in a rather passionate and committed way during dangerous times. Which means, of course, that's going to play itself out one way or the other uh, in his works. So it's just illicit to read Shakespeare in the light of 21st, gen 21st century pride and prejudice. Um, we need to actually read it you know, through the eyes of Shakespeare himself. And in doing that, the, the plays actually come to life in such a, an exciting way that transcends all of this nonsense that you get in modern productions of the play, which are really just sort of rather sordid representations of whatever the agenda-driven uh, propaganda of the producer is. Mm, like the phony romance of the way people tend to talk about Romeo and Juliet. I loved, I believe it was one of the great courses, or was it a, a Catholic courses? Um, you, you tell our audience, Joseph, where you break open a lot of the Shakespeare plays and talk about really the moral lessons involved in Romeo and Julia about this kind of selfish romantic love and the destructive force that it can be and just proving itself to be in our times. Well, yes, and I've, I've had the pleasure and the privilege, of course, of teaching several Shakespeare courses for Homeschool Connections. It allows me over a period of, say, six hours uh, to break up, you know, to to, to go, go deeper into one of the plays um, and see it through Shakespeare's eyes. My book, uh, where I look at three of the plays in depth, is called Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays. You're right, I have taught a Catholic courses on Shakespeare. But you mentioned, you mentioned um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, and actually um, the third book I wrote on Shakespeare is called Shakespeare on Love, 
and it's only about Romeo and Juliet. So people can actually go. Uh, I, t I take that. I take them through every single scene of the play. And what you show, I'll tell you the easiest way of putting it, um, is that when Shakespeare was writing that play, he was the father of a 13-year-old uh, girl. Um, so this is this is a father's perspective, um, trying to um, convey wisdom to uh, to uh, to a 13-year-old. To, to prevent her from making all the mistakes that Juliet actually makes. Um, wow. In other words, this is a cautionary tale from the perspective of a father to a daughter. Oh, boy, that sheds a whole new light on that oh, play, doesn't you bet. it? You bet. <laughs> Being the mother of a daughter who just turned 20, but golly, the teenage years have been, you know, really a, a time of... Well, my, my, my daughter's 11, so I, I have it coming. Yeah, you've got it coming. Don't give her a phone. <laughs> um, she doesn't have one. Doesn't have good, good. Anyway, um, you mentioned that you, you've referred to Chesterton, and the and in your book, you uh, your memoir, you refer to how he was the most powerful influence under grace on your personal and intellectual development over the following years. Um, as far as your love of Chesterton and other really great books and poems and on all the beauty that you uh, bring into your family life as a homeschooling dad, where does literature play a part in the way you've, you and your wife are designing their education? Well, from the very earliest stages, as, as I said, uh, you know, as people may know, our son, our son Leo has Down's and autism, so he's he's a little bit different because he's he's not going to sit down for very long and listen to to anything. But our, but our daughter, um, we we've been reading to her since she was. Uh, well, I can't remember when we first started reading to her. Uh, and generally speaking, what what I, I've been reading to her just before prayers, and then my wife reads to her after she goes to bed. Um, and so we've done that for, for many, many years now. Uh, generally speaking, I read the British literature, British children's literature. So we've read, for instance, uh, all of the Chronicles of Narnia at least twice, possibly three times. Um, the Hobbit, um, at least once, Lord of the Rings. But also uh, you know, other series, uh, some, some of which might not be that well known over here, such as Swallows and Amazons, which is a great series by Arthur Ransom, which I would recommend. Uh, you know, Wind of the Willows, some of these other classics. And my wife, generally speaking, has been reading the uh, the American and, and North American uh, Canadian children's stories, the little house books, for instance. Um, but she, because she's a great devotee of Jane Austen, she called Rank, and she's the one that's reading Jane Austen to our daughter, um, which is <laughs> fine. Um, so, yeah, so basically now, because we're now Evangelist obviously a bit older, when we spend time together, um, I read some, I'm reading something to her, but she's also reading something to me. So we have a little bit of each of our books, maybe a chapter of each uh, before prayers, and then Susanna's still reading with her in, in the evening. So that's been a part, I mean, literally from, from as soon as she's been old enough to, to, to want to have a bedtime story, basically. Absolutely wonderful. How incredibly rich. I remember when I first had my daughter and I had been infertile for many years. I was 40 years old and a brand new mom and I knew nothing. Even though I had babysat and came from a big family, somehow I was very lost. And my friend who's a teacher and was already a mom said to me, start reading to her now. She was a newborn in my arms. And I was like, really? 
All right, I'll do it. I trust you, Stephanie, because she's an amazing teacher. By the time my daughter was about four months old, I would lay her little board books out on the bed in front of me with her on my lap, and she would lunge for her favorites. Four months old. And she was consistent about which ones were her favorites. So, and then became verbal very young. I mean, a lot of little girls do. But um, I was amazed at how enraptured she was with stories. I mean, she was constantly following me around saying, tell me a story when I didn't have time to be reading her story. Yeah, we, talk, we, talked, we talked earlier about literature, about how literature comes in switching up two modes, uh, the, the storytelling uh, and the engagement with beauty. And I would say that, that, that the storytelling is more primal in the sense that we don't really um, learn to really experience the kiss of beauty until it's somewhat more mature. Uh, because, you know, you, first of all, it comes with virtue. I mean, the, the, the kiss of beauty is dependent upon uh, our humility. So, you know, if before the age of reason, you're not really going to have a developed virtue. Therefore, you're not really going to understand the kiss of beauty. But the, 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 the love for stories it begins literally as soon as, as soon as we're anything. I mean, as soon as we got any um, um, nous whatsoever, we have this desire to be told stories, to imagine ourselves in a story. There's something about the way that we're made. And I think it's because... God is himself a storyteller who actually not, doesn't just tell stories. Uh, he actually is part of the story. Um, you know, God doesn't show us things in abstract concepts. God doesn't tell us about his omnipotence or, or his omniscience. Philosophers deduce that. But what God shows us is who he is by what he does. In other words, by being part of a story. Yeah, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Somehow it's embedded in us to love stories. I love in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, which is a hilarious book, um, where the Lost Boys have just shot Wendy down and she comes to and they ask her to be their mother and she says, oh, I'm just a little girl, I have no experience. And they say, can you tell stories or do you tell stories? And she says, oh, yes. And they say, then you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly one of the important uh, roles of a parent, of both mothers and fathers, is to be good storytellers. No doubt about that. Mm, yeah, we actually have a recurring feature for this series of podcasts called Story Strands with Celeste Behe, Behe who uh, writes for a lot of the Catholic magazines. She's fantastic and a great speaker. And it's all about telling your own family stories in order to teach virtue and all of that. So there's a lot of that storytelling feel of family life that can kind of express itself in a lot of different ways. Yeah, which is why I do think, you know, that you know, if we have, I mean, I love literature, my wife loves literature, so it's very easy and natural for us. I'm aware that for other people it's more of a challenge, um, but I would say, you know, that if, if you're the sort of person that, you know, that, that doesn't like fiction, should we say, first thing I would say is, you know, that the, 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 prodigal, the story of the prodigal son is a work of fiction, right? The prodigal son never existed, nor did his father, nor did his brother, nor did the pigs. It's a, it's a fictional story. It's a product of our Lord's imagination, a figment of his imagination. In other words, that we learn some of the most powerful lessons through stories. So if it doesn't come natural to us, we have to, if you like, we have to nurture and nourish that good uh, wealth, which is which we need to have, not just for ourselves, but then, of course, to be able to convey that to our children. Mm, how important is it for your children to see you and your wife reading your own books for pleasure? Yes, we, 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 Susanna and I always have you know, at least one book going for recreational reasons. Most of my reading is connected to my work, but I always have at least one book I'm reading purely for fun. Um, some, sometimes it's squeezed squeezed into aer aeroplane rides, normally when I'm on my way home and I have no prep to do. 
but I always have it downstairs by the armchair. Uh, and if I'm not too tired after you know the, the, the long day, then I, maybe I'll read a chapter before I go to bed. What were the important stories for you when you were a child? Well, you know, I, I, I my, my parents never really read to me. Um, again, you know, the, the, from 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 the absence, one 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 realised the importance of the pheasants. Uh, my mother was very good in many ways, but she never ever read to us. My father, you know, he he gave me a great love of literature, but it was normally quoting speeches from Shakespeare or or, or reciting whole poems, um, not telling stories. Um, so uh, I, I was I was deprived, and actually, I, I sort of discovered literature really as a teenager. Um, but then it's become a passion for life, and um, it's not the ideal way to do things. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I love my parents, but I think that I, they, they were my 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 childhood was deficient in, in to the extent that I did not have that as part of it. I have a dear friend who just never felt comfortable reading aloud, is not really much of a fiction reader. And so she just paid attention to book recommendations from other people. And, and once her kids could read and her re kids all started reading very young, she just started handing them books. So they have a culture in their home of it's very much expected for them each to be in their various places in the home curled up with a good book. One of the beauties of, of you know, if, if you can, if you can um, instill in your children a love of reading, the rest becomes easy. Um, so, you know, but get, that, get that imagination working at a young age so that when they are able to read and they can actually exert that imagination and they experience the imagination for themselves by just going into their own books, um, then there's a, there's a lot of self-volition at that point. They, 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 they're off the runway, they're flying. And obviously, you have to monitor what it is they're reading. But but really, it, 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 most of education takes care of itself once they have a love and a desire to read. Mm, absolutely. That hunger that great books can really keep alive and, and set off for life. What What are some, I guess, kind of ideas that continue to guide you in terms of passing along that love of literature, literature to your children? What What are some things that maybe are useful to everybody in all their different family cultures, just some basic thoughts about it. Well, I think, I think one thing is that we have to realize that one of the, the strongest and most powerful ways of teaching our children about the world in which they live is through these great works of literature. Um, and so we're not just, it's not just about, you know, the imagination and, 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 you know, um, them experiencing stories. It's about them actually experiencing reality. So if you, if you read Dickens, you're finding out a great deal about 19th century uh, England. Uh, and 19th century England is not that weird because, you know, human beings in 19th century England have a lot, a lot in common with us. So how do we cope with, with poverty? How do we cope with a world that's become so materialistic and fixated on wealth that it actually does not um, uh, treat the dignity of the human person well? Uh, it neglects the dignity of the human person. These are lessons that are priceless about the world in which we live. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's literature is an education for life, not just about telling stories. The greatest literature contains deep theology, deep philosophy, obviously historical context, how people should relate to each other, how we treat each other, all of that. That's why the humanities are called the humanities because they actually show us humanity. We become more fully human, more fully humane to the extent that we understand the humanities. That's why the great books are essential, and that's why they're neglect in the modern public school system um, for utilitarian purposes is actually stunting the humanity 
of, of, of generations of children, which is going to be obviously bad for them, but it's going to be bad for the future. It's amazing how the common core and other influences on our society have kind of reduced children to consumers, to cogs in the machine, to regurgitators instead of thinkers and reflectors. And the problem with that, of course, apart from the fact it's bad for them, and if it's bad for them, it's going to be bad, bad for society because if they, can't, if they can't be fully human because they haven't been shown how to be fully human, we're not going to live in a fully human culture or fully human society. We're going to live in, we're going to live in an inhumane and dehumanized culture. We can see the fruits of that already. But beyond that, on a purely utilitarian level, you know, that the, the, the smartest employers know that some of an education in the humanities is able to think for themselves how to not only have good thoughts, but to, how to articulate those thoughts to others because um, they have an imagination that's been educated. And um, imagination is as valuable in any, in any industry, even in engineering or any other sort of science. Without the imagination, um, we would be nowhere. Einstein made his breakthroughs because of the use of his imagination. He was an innovator. Innovation is impossible without the imagination. So the STEM subjects uh, of, of the core curriculum are stunting the imagination. So it's not even very, doesn't make any sense from a purely utilitarian perspective, let alone from any other human perspective. I've even read my daughter a couple of years ago. She's now much more in the arts. But a couple of years ago, I was thinking about medical school. And so we started to look at their websites. And even medical schools are looking for students that have bachelor's degrees in the humanities. They want to see people who uh, are well-developed as musicians or writers or whatever it is, or psychologists, something else, something that balances them out so that they are problem solvers, so that they are oriented towards other human beings as well. Precisely. So, you know, if you're working in the medical industry, for instance, you do actually have to um, have um, an ability to use your imagination about how to best to, to, to deal with a problem. And you also have to deal with human beings and particularly human beings in positions of trauma um, and stress. You know, if, if you have no way of actually handling a relationship with another human being, it doesn't matter how, many, how much technical skill you have, you're going to be no good. So, I mean, again, it's a perfect example, really, of an education in the humanities is an education for life. Um, and and in, in, in all of its ramifications, including the purely utilitarian aspect of being, I don't like to use the word a cog in the machine, but certainly, you know, in the world of business, right, in, in the world of commerce, we do need human beings that can engage on a human level. And you learn that through the humanities, not through the physical sciences. And, and I feel like, too, that ability to be in touch with human beings through stories helps us to recognize the... Uh, the excitement or the the uh, curiosity that we can have about other people's stories in order to be empathetic, to be able to hear other points of view, to be challenged, uh, to be enlightened by other people we might not expect to have something to teach us. When we're oriented towards stories and humanity like that, I feel like we become better listeners and learners on this whole other level, one-on-one. -on -one. Again, without wishing to get too deep, uh, it, it is all about the good, the true, and the beautiful. And the good, the true, and the beautiful are all about the other. So goodness is about, is about giving yourself sacrificially to the other. Um, the truth is about engaging with the other. In other words, getting outside of yourself to a, a, a engage with an object. So your subject is subject to an object. And so you can make sense of how that reality in the cosmos, which is beyond you, beyond your own ego, makes sense. So the good is about giving yourself to the other, the true is about giving yourself to the other, and the experience of the beautiful 
again, is about sitting in silence and being in awe at something other than yourselves. So in a radical relativist culture, we are completely narcissistic. So we only, uh, we're self-centered, so we don't love anything because we don't even love ourselves because we learn to hate, you know, the, the little narcissistic golem we've become. No, <laughs> we don't engage with reality because it's all about my own opinions, not about anybody else's truth, right? And, and we, don't, we don't experience beauty because we, we're basically completely fixated on our own uh, microcosmos that we, we may be created in the social media. We don't look up from the screen to see the beauty of the stars, the beauty of the sky. So in other words, that we actually cease to be able to engage with the other in any of those different multifarious ways, which stunts us, it's very, very, very sad, but we actually, I used to phrase the, the, the verb to golemize, you know, from the Lord of the Rings, we actually golemize ourselves, we become like golem. Now you, you think about it, how, how many people in a job interview would actually hire Gollum if there was someone that's more fully human beside him. Not many. So we're actually ruining ourselves to the extent to which we succumb to narcissism. And the public school education system is ruining our children because it has succumbed to narcissism. It's true. And I can't quote it exactly, but I remember reading Orthodoxy years ago and Chesterton saying something along these lines that the person who sees himself as the center of the universe, as being is their own divinity and having their own truth and their own reality, creates a universe so pathetically small that when we let something be greater than ourselves, suddenly our, the possibilities become endless. Absolutely. But Chesson also said, and this, this doesn't contradict that, but he also said, this is the paradox. The self is more distant than any star. So insofar as we actually try to understand ourselves, forget it, because, you know, the, you, the, it, it, it's impossible to understand oneself. The only way we actually understand ourselves at all is in relation to objective reality. In other words, first of all, by having a relationship with another person we come to understand ourselves. If we don't have that other relationship with another person, we do not understand ourselves. To understand where we fit into the cosmos rationally helps us understand ourselves. To see where we fit in terms of creation and the beauty of the cosmos, the difference between beauty and ugliness, helps us understand ourselves. Uh, without that, if we self-enclose, we don't understand ourselves. And the more we look for ourselves, the further and further it becomes. Beautiful, beautiful paradox. And so much of this, again, revealed in literature, whether it's storytelling or sharing great ideas with some of the great authors. And I love, just to wrap up, that, um, that this influence that the authors had on you when you were really in a completely different mindset as a young man, the way literature planted seeds of, again, truth and beauty and, and, and fed by the goodness of other human beings, that somehow that became a gradual but really explosively powerful influence on you and completely transformed your life and incredible. Well, as I, as I always say that under grace, Chesterton had a, um, a greater influence on my conversion than anything else. It was discovering Chesterton, the beauty of his writing, the beauty of his mind, and the way he expressed the beauty of his mind and the beauty of his words that actually transformed my life and introduced me to other writers such as Belloc and C.S. Lewis that took me further on the journey, eventually Thomas Aquinas. So I always say that, you know, under grace, I owe my conversion uh, to G.K. Chesterton. And I always say in relation to that, that my first book uh, as a Catholic was my biography of Chesterton. And that was an act of thanksgiving, an act of thanksgiving to God for giving me Chesterton, but also an act of thanksgiving to Chesterton for giving me God. 
Beautiful. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up. Uh, thank you, Joseph, so much for your time. We know that that you have so many things that you're juggling and, and a rich family life, and we appreciate your time today. Well, it's always my pleasure. Anything to do with Homeschool Connections is uh, something I love to be involved in. Right? Aren't they just the best people? We're so blessed to be a part of their mission to serve Catholic homeschooling families. It's a beautiful mission. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.